Welcome to Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy practitioner. I'm your host, Holly Waymont. I work for UT Health San Antonio's Department of Pediatrics. In this podcast, we explore how we can provide the best, most cutting-edge, compassionate care for children. We hope to give you a unique and behind-the-scenes edge from our expert guests. After listening, click on the link on this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. Good morning and welcome to uh, Pediatric Grand Rounds. It's my distinct pleasure and actually honor to introduce two of my best friends and my colleagues. I work with them uh, very closely for almost 15 years, I think, uh, before I came to San Antonio. There are two speakers. First is Dr. Shashi Sahai, who is a pediatric hospitalist at Beaumont Children's Hospital and Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Oakland University in William Beaumont School of Medicine. Her main areas of interest are medical education, especially resident education. She has held positions in education, leadership as Associate Program Director for Pediatric Residency at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oaks, and also at Children's Hospital of Michigan uh, when I was there. She received her medical degree and also completed her pediatric residency at the Pondicherry Medical School in India. Subsequently, she went to United Kingdom for postgraduate training in pediatrics, and then she moved to US and for her pediatric residency at Children's Hospital of Michigan. It is at Children's Hospital in Michigan, actually, she started her career as a uh, um, educator, and she won many, many, many teaching awards, almost practically every year for at least 10 years in a row, if I remember, because I was the one who was handing over the awards that time. Uh, our second speaker this morning is Dr. Alison Ball. She's an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine and pediatric hospitalist at uh, Beaumont uh, Children's Hospital in Detroit. She has taught resident physicians and medical students in academic pediatrics since 2005, when she started her career at Children's Hospital in Michigan. Dr. Ball previously held a visiting professorship through Dartmouth University at the University of Rwanda, where she helped build the health education infrastructure and the pediatric residency program. Her interests include family-centered care, child advocacy and protection, global health, social pediatrics, and health equity. Early in her career, Dr. Ball was nominated and inducted into Gold Humanism Honor Society. Dr. Sahai and Dr. Ball, welcome, and thank you very much for accepting our invitation. We are looking forward to your presentation. So the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Kamat. Um, thank you, and it's indeed an honor, um, and it, thank you for the opportunity for presentation uh, at this uh, grand round, and uh, thank you for the introduction. And at this point, I must say that I need to thank Dr. Ball because now both our partnership has been now close to 17 years, and the fact that I was able to teach the residents effectively, it was because uh, Dr. Ball ensured that we were all you know, doing family-centered rounding. So as we go along in this presentation, you will see the great role that family-centered care has uh, played in uh, both our careers. So uh, today we are going to talk about um, more at bedside. Um, we have no disclosures. So some of the objectives for today, uh, we want to review the role of uh, bedside medicine through the ages. And then we want to look at the factors that reduce time at the bedside. Um, and then what is the importance of bedside clinical and communication skills? And how do we apply principles and practice of patient and family-centered care? And then how do we use our time at bedside to mitigate implicit bias? And how do we prepare ourselves as faculty for bedside education with learners? And so um, now what is bedside teaching? Um, and we may all have slightly different mental models of what it really looks like, but generally what we understand it to mean, um, it can be described as one of the ideal clinical teaching modalities where we are uh, laying emphasis on history taking and physical examination skills uh, along with that professional attitude. And it provides that holistic approach in the diagnostic process and in patient care. 
And through this process, students and residents engage in clinical reasoning and problem solving. Um, and where the faculty is acting as the preceptor, they are the role model and they are providing adequate demonstration and guidance also at the same time. <clears throat> and what do we mean by more at bedside? And what is our intention as such? So the success of medical education as we look into the future through a pandemic, it will clearly depend on us rooting ourselves in the foundational and basic clinical and communication skills. And as we work on innovations to improve education, we need to strengthen the acquisition of clinical and communication skills at the bedside. And I think we all as faculty and learners, we did have this disorienting moment at the beginning of the pandemic, where all that we held dear to ourselves, where we were always in connection with our patients, where we had to make adjustments and changes, and that clearly impacted on how we uh, practice medicine. And for the purpose of our talk here, what is more at bedside, it is the physical presence of learners and teachers in the patient rooms, be it in the hospital or the outpatient clinics. And so just looking at the first objective through the ages. So we take ourselves back to the modern residency system, how it started in our country here. It was established in 1889, so way back uh, in John Hopkins Hospital. Since then, we all have seen and, you know, uh, some of us have been witness to all the exciting developments, but the advances in medicine and technology have really like change the picture of medicine and uh, we are able to treat and we are able to prevent illnesses at an individual and population level. Um, and uh, so the advances in technology, they have been at the forefront of these exciting developments, but we still have our time honored ritual um, of being at the bedside, which provides the basis for trust and healing for the patient. It is still the cornerstone of medical practice and it is fundamental to how accurately we diagnose and we provide high quality patient centered care. And not only that, it is also an important source of fulfillment and satisfaction for us as professionals as such. And just looking through the ages, so what has happened to bedside medicine? So we, we have all been excited. It is great with all the advancements that we have as such. Um, but over time, we are getting less time with our patients. There has been um, greater access to technology. And so that has shifted the diagnostic process away from the patient, more to the labs and the radiology suites. Um, and I think we all, some of us will remember when electronic health records uh, started becoming bigger and bigger, uh, where uh, they started playing a greater role in how we were interacting with our patient or how we were going about our day, um, uh, you know, on, uh, as such on any given day. And, um, and then uh, we may have heard of this uh, pay, uh, term, eye patient, coined by Dr. Abraham Varghese, where um, we are having to spend a lot of time uh, caring for the digital representation of our patient than the actual person as such. And um, so just looking at what is in the literature about bedside clinical teaching. So 50 years ago, uh, almost 75% of clinical teaching was at the bedside. And today's estimates uh, may be in the ballpark of 1 to 25%. I ho hope we are not in the zone of 1%, but there has been a significant decline in the amount of bedside clinical teaching that is occurring. And so just looking at what are the factors that take us away from the bedside. There has been definitely uh, changes in how the throughput of patients is occurring. So at institutional level, um, there is an emphasis on early discharges and also the length of stay generally has reduced for many different reasons. So not only on the emphasis on early discharges, but also the type of treatments we provide in the outpatient clinics or the types of home treatment that are being provided. And also, the electronic documentation or all that we are having to do in the computer that also plays a role in how much time we really actually present at, uh, spend at the bedside. 
and um, trainees and faculty alike will see that how much time really goes into care coordination. So for example, trying to obtain that MRI with the lumbar puncture under sedation, or when we are trying to obtain records from an outside office or getting test results or trying to even arrange for home care and communication with members of the multidisciplinary team, though that may be important, but there, there are a lot of other tasks of care coordination that do take us away from the bedside. And also um, it's, there may be a generational change in our methods of communication, and I think the pagers always got in the way of uh, how much time we spent at the bedside, and clearly, increasingly, we are communicating in the short form on our phones, and that is another factor that plays in here. And so then, um, the, uh, although we may not be able to address these factors as much in our talk, but uh, resident duty hour pressures and then the work compression that trainees have undergone. So even though they may be spending um, slightly lesser time than what they used to, but the, the work that they perform in that duration um, may not have reduced significantly. So a lot of work compression may be going on. And then we have the sicker patients with lower length of stay, as I mentioned earlier. And um, then the other factor could it be that the burnout may have played a role in the, the willingness or the energy that uh, the providers, the physicians and trainees may have of really going in and interacting with the patients? So just looking at um, some of the time motion study, it is interesting to look at these studies to see um, how much time we actually get at the bedside. So going from the year 1959 um, from uh, New Haven, Connecticut. So even in 1959, when they did the time study, they found that the time of direct patient care was in the ballpark of 13 to 16%. And they didn't really define the amount of time during the initial day, uh, but they said that most of that contact was occurring on the initial day. And on subsequent days, the trainees, um, their direct face-to-face -face contact with the patient was less than 10 minutes. Then moving on to 1988 um, in uh, Minnesota Veterans Hospital, and uh, this is the time that I think computers were coming in uh, with the the charting may not have been occurring so much in the computer, but a lot of information was available, like lab results, where again, time to direct patient care here too was 20%. And on the initial day, 17 to 28 minutes with the patient, and on subsequent days, three to five minutes. And even in the year 1988, in this study, there was 42 to 45% time spent in charting. And then in 2010, uh, in uh, New York, New York uh, this was a larger study. I believe they had uh, 81 trainees that they uh, looked at, and time to direct patient care was 9.4%. And by this time, computers were very much there, and more than 50% of the day was spent with computers. And just looking outside our country, this is the study in 2015 from Switzerland. Um, even there, the time to, of direct patient care was 16% and they were also spending 50% um, uh, and above of their time with computers. And uh, so just looking at some of the other aspects of this time motion study, like uh, what exactly were the residents doing? Uh, this was from uh, New York. Um, so 40% uh, of the time talking with others in person. So these were other team members like res nurses, respiratory therapists, um, the secretaries, then handling paper notes. So even though a lot is on the computer, but these paper notes were the sign out sheets. And we all like uh, uh, hospitalists, trainees, we know that how important those sign out notes are. Um, and then um, looking at this number for rounds, um, the 11.1% time on rounds seems a little lower than probably what we experience in real life. And then uh, what I found most interesting was the time spent in multitasking, so 59%. So we were always doing two things at the same time. So rounding and answering a page or um, uh, on the phone and putting in the orders on the computer. So there was a lot of multitasking going on. Then, um, so just, you know, just looking in summary at the time motion study. So um, we may have thought that, um, like when we were not having to physically chase down results that we may have greater time with the patients, but that has kind of shifted over to 
the computer per se. Um, and so that's what has happened. So over the ages, the direct uh, time probably that we spent did not change much. And of course, this was focusing a lot on the trainees as such. And then going on to just what do textbooks say about bedside teaching? So uh, these authors, uh, um, especially Tenkate, uh, who is an authority in medical education, looked at 17 recent books on medical education uh, to look for practical advice on how to carry out bedside teaching. So if you're a new faculty or you are that first year resident, um, so they list two of these 17 books listed bedside teaching in their index. And seven had a chapter on patient-based clinical teaching. Um, and nine books, there was no information on patient-based clinical teaching. And those that did, they spent uh, up to 12% of their pages on it. So um, it may be that bedside teaching is not treated as being very central to medical education by many authors in the field. And then uh, moving on to our third objective, so recognizing the importance of bedside skills. So what we are going to look at is how we use clinical and communication skills at the bedside, um, how it impacts uh, medical care, training, evaluation, and professional growth, specifically in the realm of our professional identity, patient care, and clinical reasoning, communication skills, learner assessment, and professional satisfaction. So just professional identity as such. Um, I think um, just personally, I feel most keenly my professional obligation to the uh, patient when I have connected with them through a con conversation, through an examination, being present in the same room with them. And this has been the tradition for, for ages. Uh, that is what defines uh, the, the basic core of our professional identity. And so just looking at this very recent um, uh, study, um, and this was after the pandemic. So this was the from the Medical Education Innovation and Research Center at Imperial College London. So they launched a glo global creative competition as a platform for medical students. So medical students were part of this competition and they were asked to uh, put in written pieces, reflect on their experiences during the pandemic. And for everybody, we know that this was a stressful experience, disorienting experience, and just everything that we did basically changed so much just through the pandemic. So the, what they got in were 648 creative pieces from um, submitted by medical students from 52 countries. Majority of them were from uh, US, America, and other European countries. And then they got consent from 155 students from 28 countries for their reflections to be included in this study. And this was, of course, mainly observational. And so they looked at the main themes that arose in the reflections of these medical students. And so the greatest, the biggest theme that arose through their reflections was that the students showed greater appreciation towards person-centered care. And they, they, um, they reaffirmed um, their commitment to active listening, their uh, emphasis on empathy and understanding of the patient's needs. So they really express their motivation to teach and adopt person-centered care in their role as future doctors. So these were medical students who were reflecting on their experiences and what, what who, who they thought they wanted to become as physicians as they went along in their careers. So when we have looked at professional identity, moving on to uh, patient care and education. So we know that um, History and physical provides uh, the correct diagnosis in the range of 73 to 90% of cases. And in pediatrics, perhaps we are lucky, majority of our common diagnosis are clinical and we can do a lot at the bedside for these patients. It is also our tool for high value care because that is the um, place where we can have a good differential and guide all the um, spending on lab testing and technology and radiology by really honing in on this particular skill. And it is that ideal place where we learn and practice 
a lot of the personal and disease specific aspects. We all, as in, you know, I think medical students will remember it the best. And, you know, we all remember when for the first time when we perhaps, you know, were able to palpate the liver and the spleen or when we, you know, probably heard a murmur, um, a pathological murmur as such. And it is the clinical exam and the bedside teaching that actually develops all the clinical reasoning. And also illness scripts. So illness scripts, which are these structured mental models of disease where people have studied it and found that all the illness scripts that we develop in our minds are through these um, real life clinical encounters that we have with our patients. And um, this is a, a quote uh, I think we may have come across that and what we kind of um, you know, encounter even in our day-to-day -day uh, day -day life that um, we have this use of technology, we have use of a lot of these uh, testing modalities available to us, but it sometimes substitutes our fears of uncertainty with delusions of certainty. And then um, what is the role of uh, being at the bedside in acquisition of communication skills? So we know that that's the best place where we learn to communicate effectively with real patients. That's the place we learn some of the on the feet uh, modulation of our communication. All the medical ethics, like moments when we know that there are certain things we do not uh, talk about in the patient room or we leave it for a, a second time. And um, also, um, and trainees will understand this better and we know that as time goes by, how we uh, modify, how we take this history without the use of extensive medical terminology. And so th that's that just plays such a big role. And we know that simulation plays a great role and it has a it has a very important role in the educational realm. It provides reasonable approximation of real pathology, but we are still not able to really actually um, mimic the real clinical encounter. And as I mentioned earlier, illness scripts, they have been studied and the best way to um, understand and have these illness scripts ingrained in uh, our cells are best, it is best through the clinical encounter. And we all know that there are certain uh, clinical um, conditions that it is just impossible to simulate as such. And I always think of moments and I think it will come across, I think we all as professionals, I think we all remember being in a room where we may have uh, broken a bad news to the family. And that is something that stays with us always, or even you know, just in our day-to-day -day practice, um, the, the communication that we have with families, those uh, get ingrained in us and that's the best way for some of that learning to happen after we have practiced it in the simulated setting. And the, the next, as educators, we know that there is a big role that we play in assessment of our, of our residents. And this question comes to mind that does our teaching modality depend on our method of assessment? And um, do we uh, have a lot of incentive or opportunity for our trainees to improve their physical examination skills or their uh, physical history or, or their history taking skills uh, with less time at bedside? And as we say that the terminology of like teaching to the test uh, in our country here, we are assessing our patients through written exams only. So is that really assessing their clinical skills or their skills at the bedside? And there are models um, in other parts of the world um, where at all high level examinations, uh, professionals external to the home institution actually examine uh, the trainees and kind of let them move on to the next stage in their career. So that, that just something to reflect upon as to how we assess everybody here. And um, then the other thing that we know that the gold standard is direct observation of the um, learners and our trainees. Um, and on rounds, when we have, when we hear the presentations, uh, we are taking it to mean that the trainee has expertise in adequately gathering that information. And 
Um, so a lot of it is we are probably uh, assessing secondarily or the evaluation is kind of secondhand. That's what um, is the current state. That's what we do um, as such here. And at this moment, I'm going to hand over to Dr. Ball to um, move into uh, patient and family-centered care. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Sahai. Good morning, everyone. So we're going to shift a little bit here and focus for a short time on patient and family-centered care. In pediatrics, of course, the family is central. In adult medicine, too, you know, family is who the patient tells us is family. And where are the patients and families? They're in the bed and at the bedside. And so that's where ideally we will be as well. So as defined by the Institute of Patient and Family-Centered Care, patient and family-centered care is the approach. It's how we collaborate with patients and families to provide health care. So we as hospitalists, you know, are in this partnership and with good communication and hopefully trust and rapport, um, this is like the root of everything in medicine, this partnership, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, or it should be the root of everything, not just the care itself, but every aspect of the interaction. And this could include the planning of the building of a new children's hospital, for example, or the action taken as a result of, of feedback from families. Family-centered rounds, as you all must know in the Department of Pediatrics, are daily rounds at the bedside with family, physician, and other care partners in discussion. And this is just one example of doing more at bedside, being at the bedside when the most important decisions of the day are being made. In 2012, the American Academy of Pediatrics emphasized that family-centered rounds should be standard practice. And despite working in this area for many years, it's still challenging and there's still things all the time uh, that distract us and pull us away. So let's take a step back uh, quickly and recognize that in the early 2000s, when family-centered rounds was really reborn as a concept, that's coming right at the same time when the electronic medical record and all it can do for us is, is exploding, frankly. And so despite this AAP statement, bedside rounds are frequently substituted by conference room presentations. Um, we know Dr. Sahai just went over some of the uh, frequent factors we see taking us away from the bedside, and not the least of which, you know, is comfort. Uh, teaching may be perceived as easier in discussion of a complex case, you know, less burdensome when first discussed without family being present. But the core of family-centered rounds is presence. And you can practice evidence-based medicine well from a conference room, but you can't provide respectful and compassionate care. So family-centered rounds includes active participation of the patient and family in the, in the discussions and decision-making process. Um, this would include asking permission from the patient and family to conduct rounds in this way, encouraging the family to speak up if something is confusing. Um, introductions are key, reintroductions as so many people are in the room day in and day out, um, and acknowledging everyone in the room present for the family. It's important to remind our learners not to use medical jargon and to explain complex concepts. Um, choosing your words wisely is really important, um, and it's important also to give family members permission to interrupt rounds. It's helpful to often say things like, you know your child best, um, so please jump in um, and add to the story here. Um, if topics are thought to be too sensitive, um, there's, there's ways to, to honor that, and it's important to not neglect those topics altogether. Um, and of course, as teachers, we don't want to embarrass anyone, put anyone on the spot. Um, it's helpful, I find, to, you know, remind learners that, hey, something's going to be awkward in here. Like, it's okay. We'll work through it together. 
So in the last 10 to 15 years, family-centered rounds were noted in some studies to be shorter in duration overall, but in other studies, especially earlier, longer. And this was really accepted by many of us as okay, um, with the thought that issues addressed at the bedside early in the day would um, lessen time on the back end, maybe fewer calls uh, from the nurses to the residents to clarify topics of conversation. Um, there was a recent uh, publication in pediatrics last year reviewing all of the available evidence regarding acceptance of and adherence to family-centered rounds. Um, there are 53 studies included from January 20 or 2009 to July 2020, and authors found that yes, family-centered rounds are increasingly accepted by stakeholders and by stakeholders, this means patients, families, and healthcare professionals. But of course, consistent participation lags. Um, I've certainly felt this myself, whether it's my comfort day to day, my perceived barriers day to day, differences within a team as to how different uh, colleagues of ours uh, practice and, and support and kind of push from the institution about uh, best practices. Of course, structural barriers remain. Um, families have other children they need to uh, care for. There's nurse duties like passing meds in the morning at the time of typical rounds. But what do patients think of family-centered rounds and bedside teaching? Um, so patients and families do report better understanding of their disease. Um, they did not, in physiologic studies, express any increased stress. Um, and in the majority of cases, they enjoyed the bedside teaching sessions. Um, that included, you know, both rounds and perhaps some teaching uh, between the team members. And what do parents think of this process? So this study looked at conference room presentations versus bedside teaching in a pediatric ICU. And parents of patients did report more satisfaction. Um, the most interesting thing I felt was the parents rated the residents taking care of their children as more competent. And that really kind of shows you that in this sense, the family sees the hard work the team is doing. They see connection and rapport uh, being developed amongst the team and then with them as well. Some residents in the study felt uncomfortable when asked questions at the bedside, but did acknowledge that they liked the fact that their attendings could demonstrate clinical skills and give and receive feedback in real time. And learners do acknowledge this is a very important way of learning skills. Um, and less than half of residents um, in a couple of studies in the early 2000s reported that they received enough of it. Um, the majority of teachers think that this is very effective for not just physical exam skills, but history taking and communication as well. Um, and of course, bedside teaching uh, communication with the families doesn't just have to be on rounds, um, but can be throughout the day. You know, we know the importance of encouraging learners to go back um, reassess patients frequently, um, and we'll talk a little bit about um, what we are trying to generally institute at our um, hospital of, of communication rounds in the afternoon. So let's shift a little bit to humanism um, and empathy. We'll discuss this for a bit. So this is not just kindness. Uh, the Gold Foundation defines humanism as compassionate, collaborative, and scientifically excellent care. Um, and their view is that healthcare will be dramatically improved by placing the interests, values, and dignity of all people, not just at the core of practice, of healthcare practice, but it, as, at teaching as well. Um, empathy is an important component of professionalism in medical practice. Um, and there's more and more literature demonstrating that caring, trusting, collaborative relationships lead to more appropriate medical decision making by professionals, better patient adherence and compliance with treatment plans, and less health or less costly healthcare outcomes. 
The literature also demonstrates, though, that there's declining empathy among physicians and learners in general. And we probably, many of us have probably experienced, you know, witnessing a change of sorts between students and residents as the year, the years go on in their training. Um, and burnout and moral injury are at an all-time high, not really because of the pandemic, but exacerbated by it, you know, after many years of declining satisfaction on the whole. Um, in the profession of medicine. And fortunately, uh, the medical literature does provide evidence that the constructs of humanism, you know, can be learned and, and taught to others. So it's essential for us to be mindful of this and consciously uh, role model uh, these qualities and this professionalism to our learners. So what can we do as clinician educators? So we can sit down and have a conversation. We can take a little bit of longer time on rounds. Uh, we can refer to patients and parents by their names and not say mom or dad, which I am certainly guilty of at times. Um, we can encourage our residents and students to spend an extra few minutes getting to know their patients and families. And then with that information, um, use it in their presentations, incorporate the psychosocial aspects of their patient stories into their presentations, into their H&Ps, um, you know, that they pre present, you know, in family-centered rounds. Um, and you can reflect in real time on the impact of illness on a patient and family. Um, you know, between rooms on rounds, you can ask your learners, you know, did the mother's reaction surprise you when you shared your thoughts about the psychiatric diagnosis, for example? Or why do you think the dad was so mad in this situation? Um, and it's not inappropriate to share the emotional impact of stories on yourself as a person and as a physician. Um, and really use those opportunities uh, to teach, right? If you feel something didn't go well, um, you know, ask like, that didn't go so well, or I didn't feel good about that. How did you think my interaction was? You know, I ask my learners how they feel my communication was, or I'll say, you know, I felt badly uh, that it seemed like mom perceived my words this way. Like, what do you guys think? And really reflect in the moment um, and, and talk about ways that these interactions can be uh, more humanistic. Um, so spending time at the bedside can actually help mitigate implicit bias. So taking the time, being at the bedside, getting to know patients and families can shift your thinking from families as in your out group to being in your in group. And this out group in group concept is from sociology. Your in group being a social group to which you psychologically identify as being a member while your out group is a social group with which you don't identify. So on the surface, visually during rounds, you may not feel like the family is in your in-group or your brain doesn't identify this subconsciously. Um, and we can see, and I'm sure we all have experiences where you connect with the family in a certain way because of similarities, right? Like you're, a, a young pediatrician, you're a new father, and a dad brings their newborn in with an illness, right? Like you're going to feel that connection, like, oh, wow, like I have a baby that age. What if this happened to my baby? Um, so talking to families, getting to know them better, and seeing where similarities lie can really expand the ways we feel connected. Um, one way, of course, to do this more cognitively is, is just strictly employing social perspective taking. You know, we as humans have the way of deciphering thoughts and feelings of others and just really consciously pausing and trying to see things from another's perspective. Um, and cultivating empathy in this way, cognitively and emotionally both, is the key to kind of start recognizing um, and managing your your own implicit bias, which which we all have. 
Um, and kind of in summary, that explicit attention to what unites patients and physicians within a shared emotional context does protect against stereotyping and reframing the relationship as an interaction between collaborating equals um, that, you know, patient and family center care is all about um, can help in this way. So moving on to our last objective, how do we prepare for more at bedside? So we'll begin our discussion here at the macro level of accrediting bodies and then reflect on what can be done at the institutional level, group and team level, and, and personal faculty and learner level. So we want you guys to you know, reflect on your institution and team and ask yourself questions you know, and, and wonder what if. And I'm going to turn it back over to Dr. Sahai. Thank you, Dr. Ball. <clears throat> it's always so inspiring to hear you talk about uh, family-centered care. So thank you for that. So uh, moving on to this objective. Um, so just looking at what is really encouraging is that the bodies that are involved, you know, the, the um, governing bodies like the ACGME, the Institute of Medicine, they are also paying attention uh, to this phenomenon of how we get everybody back to the bedside. And so this is an excerpt from uh, currently the National Academy of Medicine, formerly Institute of Medicine, uh, in their most recent report from 2015, uh, which was titled Improving Diagnosis in Healthcare. So they expressed concerns that traditional bedside evaluation skills have received less attention due to the growth in diagnostic testing in medicine. And um, this has almost inverted the diagnostic paradigm. And uh, clinicians often bypass the bedside evaluation for immediate testing. And the report, of course, emphasized what we talked about earlier, that a careful physical exam can help a clinician refine the next steps in the diagnostic process and prevent unnecessary diagnostic testing, and also building that relationship and trust with our patients. And so that was Institute of Medicine. And then looking at ACGME as such, um, and that's our acc accrediting body, uh, they launched the Back to Bedside Initiative in 2017. So the project was initially conceptualized to offer up to five funding awards, but I'll go into what they're doing currently and how it came about. So <clears throat> this was part of an, uh, it came about by appreciative inquiry. And again, they went back to the uh, the biggest, I think the most important stakeholders are trainees. So they this was the Council of Review Committee residents that consists of 37 residents and fellow members, and they drew from all types of specialties. So uh, there was representation from everybody. And what they did was um, this inquiry was guided by the memoir um, by Paul Kalanidhi, uh, which is uh, When Breath Becomes Air. And um, so the general steps of this appreciative inquiry was to discover uh, dream, design, and then look at the destiny. And uh, so, and I let the audience read this extract from the book that the residents and fellows used for this particular appreciative inquiry. So those are powerful words from that book. And so what came up, so they looked at the themes after the appreciative inquiry that came back from the residents and fellows. So again, the trainees. And so what is their dream? The five predominant themes for the learning environment to enhance meaning for our trainees were more time at the bedside, to engage in direct patient care, dialogue with patients and families, and bedside clinical teaching. They wanted a shared sense of teamwork and respect among the multidisciplinary uh, team members decreasing time spent on non-clinical and administrative responsibilities, a supportive work environment, a learning environment conducive to developing clinical mastery and progressive autonomy. So this is coming from our trainees, the dream that they have. And then the design that came about from their inquiry was that they need adequate non-clinical and support staff to 
help timely completion of administrative or non-clinical tasks and um, a commitment to supporting wellness and to spend time and resources towards activities to enhance medical education, clinical teaching and mentorship of trainees and a culture of peer support, community and engagement. Then looking at the destiny of it, like what, what can be done really to move in the direction of that dream. Uh, so ACGME currently has 20, so they set out to do uh, five projects initially and they have two yearly cycles. So I believe now this is the third cycle. And so for the 2022-24 initiative, they have 21 funded projects. On their website, that list is there. So these are all trainees and learners, uh, along with their faculty who have put in um, projects that have the theme of back to bedside. And um, ACGME, of course, is always, you know, looking at the program requirements and regulations and how best these requirements and regulations will actually promote and support trainees back going back to the bedside. And then a focus on sharing best practices through this. And the CRCR as such could provide more educational and orientation material available to residents because as Dr. Ball mentioned initially, it could be uh, a little discomforting, a little a zone of discomfort, like going in and holding all the discussions in the patient room. So adequate training and adequate material provided to all our trainees would be a good step. Then what could institutions do? So more organizational resources dedicated to supporting trainees with non-clinical work and also that creation of supportive work environment and psychological safety. So if something is not going well for trainees, for them to be able to speak up in that scenario. And um, then at the individual level, what could we do? And that's where our self-reflection comes into play. We know that what drives us are these patient-physician relationships. Um, then practicing that self-reflection when we have good encounters, when we have had encounters which may be a little difficult. And then supporting each other so supporting uh, the faculty we work with, supporting the trainees uh, who we work with, and, um, and, and just the whole team as such, uh, that, that's, that sense of teamwork that is there. And of course, the focus of our talk was not on wellness, but also important to take time away because then that does let us reflect better um, when we do that. And um, at this moment, I'm going to hand over back to Dr. Ball to talk about um, institutional endeavors that would go towards this aim. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sahai. It's always reinvigorating for me to have these discussions with you. Uh, so ways in which institutions and hospitals can recognize the importance of more bedside include high-level institutional support of initiatives like family-centered rounds. Um, as Dr. Sahai mentioned, that the ACGME project um, highlighted administration and other facilitation with non-clinical tasks. Um, private rooms in and of themselves can kind of help with space, um, space for conversation and presence. Um, widespread availability of excellent medical translation and interpretation, both in person and, you know, using technology and technologic support in general. When infection control is a barrier, there will be another COVID, um, if not uh, COVID itself, something similar. And, you know, having aids and communication for teaching will be really important moving forward. Um, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we had um, many learners, you know, stay out of the room, um, not just with COVID patients, but with anyone when we were really socially distancing um, in the beginning. Um, and just um, an emphasis on communication in general, right? The uh, leadership always asks us, did you finish this note? Did you do this discharge summary? Are you up to date with this? No one asks us, did you round? You know, did you communicate well with the family? Um, there are models for residents as teachers rotations, unique opportunities for young educators to teach at the bedside, both junior residents and medical students. Um, and, you know, 
being educated on on these topics and and being able to practice at the bedside um, will really help them moving forward as educators. Um, guidelines for family centered rounds, details, how to be consistent, um, support from your hospital doesn't always mean buying from your colleagues, having those regular conversations about the importance. Um, We've been doing communication rounds in the afternoon, so going back with the whole medical team at around two o'clock, nothing formal, no presentations, um, but checking in, having the family guide the conversation, answering questions and providing brief updates um, as a team in the room. Um, and nursing huddles are another way to kind of get a multidisciplinary approach to um, like bedside care. Um, family meetings, you know, when length of stay is higher or complexity is present, it's another way to be more present at the bedside. Uh, two days ago, I was involved in a hour and a half to two hour meeting uh, led by a pediatric surgeon. He spent a lot of time with his family um, and we were able to be there in a multidisciplinary way um, and it went really well. Um, individual faculty should know that trainees are watching them closely. Uh, humanistic physicians tend to know, you know, that they are role models, and it's important to know that you can have an, an impact, not just on how you're perceived, um, but on outcomes uh, with families, strict healthcare outcomes. So I'll ask uh, Dr. Sahai here to join me. Um, that concludes our presentation. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. These are our conclusion statements. Identifying opportunities for teaching the art and science of medicine at the bedside, uh, teaching the art of interactive communication, working at the institutional level to perhaps take away non-clinical tasks from learners. And we must recognize that empathic interactive communication and the laying on of hands uh, through presence uh, can decrease bias and improve outcomes. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ball, and thank you, Dr. Sahai. Let's see if anybody has any questions or comments for you. Hello, this is uh, Jeremy Perlman, one of the hospitalists. Um, I just one of the things that can be a, a big barrier um, is is and, and also create a lot of waste is like, you know, most of our patients are on precautions of or isolation of some kind because everyone's got rhinovirus. I mean, not not talking COVID here, just regular stuff. And, um, you know, to have the whole team put on a gown and everything just to come and listen on rounds is wasteful in terms of environmental impact and cost. And so I, I often tell my team members that, you know, if they've already examined the patient or if, if there's nothing to, to actually see on exam, I mean, to feel on, to listen to on exam, they can come in and just keep three, not touch anything, keep three feet from everyone and not put on a gown. So I don't know if that's officially sanctioned by the hospital, but it, it does make it a lot, a lot more practical for people to come into the room. Thank you for that. Yes, we struggle with that as well. I've been having them put on. We have disposable um, gowns, not no, not non-disposable, like they're they're washed. Um, but yeah, sometimes I do tell them, OK, um, stand six feet back. Um, you have your mask on. Don't touch anything. And if there's an important physical finding, we'll have you gown and glove up but to be there and stand back and, and listen and be part of the conversation. There's it's a hard. question. Good, good. Sorry. No, please go ahead. Uh, there's a question in the chat box. Can you share some strategies in talking with administration to support residents with non-clinical clerical tasks? Yeah, I think that's so, a hard one. I, I mean, I. I've, I've come across two models, both of us, you know, being in two different institutions. Um, and so I must say that um, in my prior institution, I think there was a good buy-in from the department and we had uh, resident team assistants and they were generally uh, college graduates or college students who 
assisted with these tasks. And of course, there was a layout like th there were finances involved in hiring these individuals, but they it, it worked out really well and truly. Um, yes, at that moment, the leadership had a good buy in like they, they knew that there was a benefit to this particular and how we um, probably like we looked at it also that, you know, the throughput again, you know, the same things that the institution is looking for. Like if we put that as a thing that, um, you know, maybe this will, uh, you know, get this patient out quicker or we'll be able to arrange that MRI quicker. And uh, so that was at uh, the other institution. And then at our current institution, um, and if I may take the name, like we we had a very senior nurse who was this person, and it so much so that she was so good at that task, and I'm saying was because, as you can imagine, it was before COVID, and with the reduction in number and a lot of when the institution was getting uncomfortable with the finances, that uh, Trudy had to retire, and we I, I I took her name because truly that position became her name because this person. They, she knew the whole system and she was literally in the morning, she would come and go from resident to resident and take each and every task away. And in this case, the financing uh, was again, I think at that moment, Dr. Ball remind me, I think again, it was in the realm of throughput, care coordination. We, we kind of uh, looked at it that way and that position was funded. And again, we are back to that same stage when the numbers have gone up and we are we are having to, you know, again, you know, make that case. And so far, you know, we haven't been successful, but I'm hoping we'll have that success. Yeah, this is uh, Michelle Arandas. I'm the program director and a hospitalist. And thank you guys for bringing up a topic that's near and dear to my heart that I spent the first half of my hospitalist career really building up and we had really gotten to a place where we were making some headway despite multiple hospital changes and other things and then of course covid um, and all the impacts that you guys described the the logistics uh, but also the nurse shortages and now we're facing the opposite high census high acuity um, higher you know nurse assignment numbers and so uh, you know for us one of the key features of really making family-centered rounds meet all of those goals that we described that matter to a hospital was having the nurse present at the bedside and that has become increasingly more difficult um, because we are sharing nurses with other services in terms of the patients that they're covering so their workflow isn't the easiest have you guys um, had any i always like to hear as many anecdotes as i can because sometimes there's some little nugget we can pull out to to sell to our admin to help support in some way that part our case management those things we've been arguing those things for 15 years and like everybody else it's it's an incredible challenge but i definitely think that that part sort of like your communication rounds we've done some similar in things with midnight rounds trying to get the night teams to really have patients ready in the morning for transition and those kinds of things but any any really successful sharing experiences that you might have with how to get the nurses engaged at the bedside I feel it's so individual. There's definitely some nurses where in the moment, if we forget to text her, she's like, you didn't call me. I didn't know. Yeah. And it seems to be an individual thing. Um, gosh, I know it's really hard and it's like the busy part of their morning, right? Um, yeah. I don't know. Do you have any nuggets? Yeah, and I know, I think, um, uh, Dr. Rande, you mentioned that you are sharing the nurses with other services. Yeah, so we we are, because uh, the, our floor is not just the hospitalist, but we, we co-manage some surgical patients, we co-manage trauma patients, and so their workflow, you know, feeds into it because when they round and they put in orders, you know, surgeons tend to do those things at four in the morning. <laughs> And so a lot of times those nurses are really busy at bedside, you know, executing mm -hmm. orders from patients that are non-primary on our team. Yeah, and, and you're right. I don't know whether like reaching perfection in that zone where the nurse is always at the bedside. I don't think we have reached that stage. And truly, as Dr. Ball mentioned, there are nurses who are like they, they want to be there and you are like they'll see you oh you are going to that room i'll come with you versus 
yes, they do get pulled away with their tasks. And uh, nursing turnover has been our issue too because our nurse manager, like she's always hiring and there have been so many <laughs> movements. But um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's difficult, but they, but slowly I, I'm hopeful that slowly we are making a change and it will reach a stage where they really like everybody just comes and you know when we call them or they are following us so we have had those but i do think it helps the more they see the more present and the more a human is behind all the orders and the phone calls and the text so the communication rounds the going to the bedside or the going to find the nurse and run the list with them helps i think tremendously because they're much more inclined to want to be present and c communicate with you if they know who you are instead of just a name in a chat or a a person behind you know a phone or a desktop so thank you guys for for re re-highlighting this issue though i appreciate it Thank you, Dr. Sai and Dr. Ball, for that wonderful presentation on uh, bedside uh, teaching. Uh, I was, I always like bedside teaching, as uh, Dr. Sai can uh, attest to that. Uh, she was my resident. Anyway, um, thank you. Really enjoyed your presentation. I'm going to um, conclude this morning's grand rounds. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. I'm Holly Waymond. I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening.